Thank you for listening to sermon podcasts from the Anglican Church Noosa. This is the first week in our topical series on The Air We Breathe, a book by Glenn Scrivener. This week we look at equality. The Bible readings are from Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, and the preacher is Chris Johnson. We're reading today from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to chapter 2, verse 3. And as I said, it's on your pew Bible and page 2. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Psalm number eight. And this can be found on page 539. Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? human beings, that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a little look at this. This is Sally. Sally is a rational person who could never make a leap of faith like Robbie up there. Look at Robbie. He's a faith head, floating around, unsupported by anything. No, Sally simply goes by the evidence and the assured findings of science and reason. 
I mean, obviously Sally believes that all people are equal. That's just normal. And that society must protect its weakest members. Obviously. She is certain that consent is essential to sex, and that education, not coercion, is the path to enlightenment. She trusts science and what it can deliver the world, she is certain that all people should be free, and she's concerned to reform the evils of yesterday as we progress to a brighter tomorrow. Oh, hey, Robbie, what are you doing down here? That's right. Sally is a believer. Because none of these morals, assumptions, or deep intuitions are the result of logic or scientific experiments. You can't prove equality, compassion, consent, or any of these values that we live by every day. We believe in these values. We stake our lives on them. But they're not the kinds of things you can deduce logically or demonstrate scientifically. It turns out that Sally is a believer. She doesn't need to make a leap of faith. She's already living at a great height. Day by day, minute by minute, she assumes any number of values that cannot be proven with mathematical certainty. The solid ground she thinks she's standing on is not the ground of simple logic or reason. Actually, the values she lives by are founded on something else, something she might not have considered. And without that foundation, the values she lives by don't really make sense. You see, Sally lives her life based on the values of the Jesus Revolution. She doesn't know that's where her values have come from. She's never been to church. She's never read the Bible for herself. But she's grown up in a culture built by Jesus and the values he has injected into the world. Sally has been assuming some deeply Christian truths all along, even if she never really examined them. But if she takes the time to look where she's standing, she might just find that she's more of a person of faith than she thought. Sally's challenge is not to take a leap of faith. Through the Jesus Revolution, history has already taken an almighty leap. Sally, along with the rest of us, are already in midair. What she needs is some ground beneath her feet. And it's Jesus alone who can provide it. That's the argument of the air we breathe. It charts the advance of the Jesus Revolution from Genesis to the modern day and from equality to progress. It's for the Robbies of the world, who are happy to be known as believers. And it's for the Sallies too, for those who thought that they were incapable of faith. It turns out that through Jesus and the growth of his movement, beliefs are far more common than we think. They are the air we breathe. So what do you think of Sally, that uh, secular person who has all these values but really doesn't know where they came from? Now, I can imagine uh, a secular atheist saying, well, these values are just self-evident. Uh, we don't need Christianity or the Bible in order to prove them. They're just obvious, aren't they? Self-evident. But the problem with that is that these values do have a history. They have not been accepted by most of the cultures down through history. Uh, it is Christian cultures that have uh, brought us these values today. There has been deviations from them in Christian cultures down through history, but it's been prophets and reformers who God raised up and they preached the word of God and called people back to these values from the Bible. And uh, Christian societies uh, have taken deviations, but have come back to these biblical values. 
If you were to build a society on purely atheistic assumptions without any of the Christian history, I would suggest that we'd be living in a very different world from the one we're living in today. No, these values are not as self-evident as we might think. The problem is we have grown up in a certain social culture where we just imbibe that culture and those values and often don't really reflect or examine what they are or where they've come from. Uh, The way you can get a touch on this is if you've travelled overseas and lived in another culture for a while and then come back to your own culture, you can see it in a new light. You notice that? And you'll be able to see more of its strengths and its deficiencies. But for the most part, of course, we simply live in our culture and just accept that that's normal. The analogy Glenn Scrivener uses in his book is that of a goldfish. Let me read you the first paragraph of the book. He says, goldfish don't see water. Goldfish see what's in the water. They see what's refracted through the water. But I assume that goldfish don't see the water itself. And yet there it is. It's their environment. Universal but invisible. It shapes everything they do and everything they see but they don't see it. So what Glenn Scrivener is trying to get us to do is to see how history and culture have shaped uh, who we are today. It's given us the air we breathe. It's our atmosphere. It's the environment we live in. Now, I'm hoping this series might help you in a number of ways. Firstly, that it might give you more confidence in the Christian history of our Western civilization. This history is much under attack at the moment, and we need to acknowledge its failings, but also take heart from the good values that this history has given us. Western society, as it's been shaped by Christianity, has so much to commend it. Secondly, I hope... Uh, that it will give you a good biblical understanding for these values because they're under attack in many ways in our society today. Uh, People who want to take these values and twist them down unchristian paths. Uh, Non-Christians may use the same words, but the definition and understanding might be quite different from a biblical definition. And so I hope this series will give us a good biblical foundation for truly understanding these values. And then thirdly, uh, I hope you might come to see that the Bible has not just personal application, but it has social application. God is interested in every aspect of our human life, including science, economics, politics. Uh, This doesn't mean there's just one Christian way of seeing all these different areas, uh, but it does mean thinking about all of life in a Christian way, every aspect of our human experience. So all of that is just by way of introduction. Uh, Let's now look at the first of these values, equality. Now by equality, we mean that all people are of equal value, regardless of race, social status, economic means, political affiliation, or religion. All people are of equal value. Every single person has an inherent value and should be treated with respect. Why do we believe this? Well, because of the book of Genesis, because of what we've just heard read this morning in our service. Look again at uh, chapter 1, 
and verses 26 and 27. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. You see, it's because we're made in the image of God that every single person is valuable. Every person matters. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Uh, There's been tomes written about this over the centuries, but here's my little snapshot. I think the key idea is that we are made for a relationship with God. Being in the image of God means we're capable of relating to this eternal creator of the whole universe. We're in his image. Genesis 1 and 2 make it clear that there is one eternal God who created everything that is. He creates a beautiful world, both day and night, land and seas, vegetation on the earth, stars in the sky, fish in the the sea and birds in the air. The one creator God designed and made it all. And then he goes one step further, makes one more creature a creature who will be made in his image, male and female. And this is what makes a relationship for us to be able to have a relationship with God that no other creature on earth can have. Uh, It's a relationship uh, where God gives us great honour, incredible honour, delegating to us dominion over the rest of the creation. That doesn't mean we're autonomous and can exploit the creation. We are still accountable to God to steward the creation well, but the creation is there to provide for our needs and for us to enjoy. So God wants a relationship with us in which he gives us great honour and respect. Being in the image of God makes that possible. That's the first thing about the image. The next thing is that it means we're creative. If God is the master creator and we're in his image, guess what? We're creative too. And have you noticed that about human beings? Uh, We see it every day, don't we? Uh, But let's look at two examples from the text. Uh, Look there where it's, well, this is going a little bit further than we read today, but Adam is given the privilege of naming all the animals. Isn't that amazing? He was the first zoologist. (laughs) God said, Adam, I'm going to leave that up to you. Go for it. Another example is the fact that uh, he created us male and female, which means we have enormous creative power to bring a new life into the world. Isn't that a miracle? Isn't that amazing that God would endow us with that creative power? Uh, In Genesis 1.28 there it says that God said, be fruitful and increase in number. Five times in this creation narrative we read, God saw it was good. And after creating human beings, uh, the text says God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Now, if you've been a Christian or in church for a while, I trust none of that is new. You might be familiar with it. You see, it's the air you breathe. However, I want to tell you that in the context in which this text first appeared, this was radical new stuff. 
radically different from anything else that had ever been produced in the world. All the other creation stories in the ancient world involve multiple gods and competition between them to see who is the greatest. And this meant battles and conquest. Human beings were created in order to serve the victorious God. And so your task in life was to make sure you got on the side of the victorious God so your life would go all right. Scrivener mentions a a couple of these ancient uh, creation stories in his book. Uh, They're in chapter 1, so you have chapter 2 is the one on equality, but go back to chapter 1 and you'll see them there. I want to this morning briefly recount the story of Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation story. And it goes something like this. It says, in the beginning there was only water swirling in the great chaos. Out of this swirl, the water is divided into sweet, fresh water, known as the god Absu, and salty, bitter water, the goddess Tiamat. It is the union of these two gods which then gives birth to the younger gods. The younger gods, however, are very loud, which greatly annoys Absu. They distract him from his work by day and interrupt his sleep by night. (laughs) He plans to kill the younger gods. Tiamat hears these plans and warns her younger son Enki. So Enki strikes first and kills his father Apsu. Tiamat, who once supported the younger gods, is enraged that they've killed her mate and wages war on them. Enki and the younger gods fight against Tiamat. One of the younger gods, Marduk, rises up to defeat Tiamat. He shoots her with an arrow which splits her in two. Out of her body, Marduk creates the heaven and the earth. He takes the remains of the gods who had encouraged Tiamat to make war and creates human beings out of them. Humans are created for the service of the gods and to set the gods free. Bit of a contrast to the Genesis account, you reckon? Just slightly? In the Babylonian story, the world is created out of conflict between the gods and human beings are there to serve the gods. In the Genesis Genesis account, there is one God and he's like an artist with a blank canvas and in his power and glory, he creates a beautiful world and a world in which human beings can live and thrive and enjoy a relationship with him. Later on in the uh, Ten Commandments, uh, the people of God are invited to enjoy a Sabbath rest, just like God rested on the seventh day. Did you notice that? The the last day, the the destiny of it all is, is this rest. This rest, so different from the conflict of the other stories. Victor Hamilton, in his commentary, sums it up this way. He says, the theological battle in Moses' day centred around belief in one God who himself is uncreated, merciful and sovereign versus the belief in multiple gods and demons who are capricious, unpredictable and often immoral. I hope this makes clear the difference that holding to the Genesis account makes. Form and order and a good creation or conflict and violence and servitude to a winning God. The difference couldn't be more stark. Glenn Scribner sums it up this way in his book uh, on page 54, which I think is a good insight. He says, 
On this first page of the Bible, we might expect to hear how it is God who rules over the world. Yet this is humanity's role. Mankind is made not to slave, but to reign. Male and female together are kings and queens of the cosmos and are stamped with the image and likeness of God. Moderns may yawn at this idea, but ancients would have choked on it. Male and female equal in God's image, equally reigning over God's world, unheard of. Now, as well as the Babylonians, Scrivener uh, looks briefly at the Greek philosophers. And I want to quote just two of them. Uh, He quotes Plato, who said this. He said, nature herself intimates that it is just for the better to have more than the worse, for the more powerful to have more than the weaker. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. Aristotle said, uh, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. See, the ancients looked at nature and they just said, well, some are fitter and stronger and smarter and just plain better than others. So they're the ones who are meant to rule. Uh, Scrivener says... uh, The attitude was that there were superior races, so Greeks over barbarians, superior sexes, men over women, and superior classes, free men over slaves. And my friends, you know what? These are not just values from the ancient world. There are so many cultures in our world today who hold to these values. People, uh, millions in fact, in so many countries, and they're waiting to hear the good news of Genesis and the good news of our Lord Jesus. And it's our task to be at mission uh, to take that good news to them. How many people have heard of Jordan Peterson? A few people? Yeah. He's a psychologist, not a Christian, um, but a social commentator and a little bit sympathetic to Christianity. But he said this. He said, Men and women made in the image of God is foundation for Western civilization and values. Each individual has something of transcendent value about them. That's the word he uses, transcendent value. Man, I tell you, we dispense with that idea at our serious peril. And in a similar vein, uh, let me quote from Shribner at the end of his chapter. And uh, I'll finish on this where he says... I've got it here. So he says, The God story and the equality story stand or fall together. If we feel that life is sacred, that every human possesses an inviolable dignity and equality, and that no one deserves to be trampled down simply because they are smaller or weaker or poorer, then we are standing on particularly biblical foundations. There is a thread running from Genesis through the New Testament to our 21st century. The thread is strong. It needs to be. The modern world hangs on it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word as we see it in Genesis. To give us a framework for understanding ourselves uh, and to hold godly values. 
a framework for seeing the majesty of your creation, the majesty of our own creation made male and female in your image. Lord, help us never to take this for granted. Give us the courage to fight for the dignity and equality of every human being, to hold up the truth of your word to our society today so that uh, people might uh, find this uh, truth, this freedom, and come to give you the glory and the praise. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Anglican Church Noosa is an evangelical Anglican church on the northern end of the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia. Our vision is living to love and proclaim Jesus. Our core values are being Christ-centred, Bible-based, spirit-led and mission-shaped. If you have found this sermon helpful and would like to contribute to the ongoing ministry of ACN, please go to our website, anglicanchurchnoosa.org forward slash giving. Thank you for listening.